Screen West Screen with Paul and Kevin, where if films were food, they'd be full of it. Welcome to another episode of East Screen, West Screen. It is Tuesday, April 3rd, 2012. This is the show where we talk about film from Hong Kong to Hollywood and lots of stuff in between. As usual, I'm your host, Paul Fox, and joining me for this tomb-sweeping day eve is Mr. Kevin Ma. Hello, everybody. Uh, hello, Paul. Uh, sorry about that earlier. I mean, we cut it out. That's all right. It's, hello, uh, how are you doing? It's it's tomb sweeping day, right? Uh, we're yes. excited. We're gonna go out and sweep tombs tomorrow. What does that mean? Oh, I've already done it. Oh, you you <laughs> so did it. I've done my duty. Yes, that's why I skipped a uh, a movie on Saturday. Yeah. So you were uh, you were out, and 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 can you give us some of the details? I mean, for those listeners out there who may not be familiar with this uh, fairly important holiday in Chinese culture. Yes, uh, the Qingming Festival. I mean, I I didn't follow the traditions per se, but I can talk a little bit about that. Um, the, it is essentially one of the two days in the year where um, you're, you're supposed to go to your ancestors' uh, graves or tombs and essentially uh, give your incense, pay your respects, uh, and clean and essentially pay them a visit. Um, one, one of them, I think, I'm not sure if Qingming is the one or is the other one, uh, but there's a tale behind it. Uh, something about a town. There's a town and a, a plague had hit the town. And apparently... Um, uh, I think the, the, the residents, uh, to escape the plague, they all went to, or they were able to escape the plague because they went to their ancestors' tombs, to mm. sweep the tombs. So in that sense, going to sweep the grave or the tomb in, and on that day uh, actually helps you avert um, misfortune. Mm. Interesting. Yes. So, uh, you know, if you're showing filial piety to your parents, it can help you avoid the uh, zombie apocalypse, right? Yes, or 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 these or SARS yeah. or next SARS or something. Or yeah. alternatively, I think I think that's been a plot point in some of the uh, uh, vampire film, the 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 Chinese hopping vampire films, right? The Kyungsi films, where if they didn't do the tomb sweeping right, the ancestor gets angry and uh, pops out of the grave and sucks your blood. Well, they deserve it, <laughs> as they do. Um, so yes, happy tomb sweeping day to all of you out there. If you are perchance celebrating it, or an early happy Easter, because that is also, we're around the cusp of Easter here, so I guess many of you will be out there coloring eggs and following through with the traditions there. Um, we've got some films that we're going to be talking about this week, though. What films are we going to mention? Uh, for East Green, we'll be doing uh, Love in the Buff, the new Pan Ho Chun, uh, now a hit. Uh, and for West Green, uh, Paul, you'll be talking about uh, The Hunger Games. Yeah, that's right. Um, we've got all of that and a little bit more coming up right after some news. All right, so we've got a couple of news stories this week, but before we get right into the news, got a couple additions to the soundboard. Uh, again, slowly but surely building up the Michael Wong 
uh, soundboard uh, that I've started. Uh, thanks in part to uh, yes. Matthew Seidel for the suggestions and some of the others out there who have forwarded uh, some various uh, clips on YouTube and, and given me some ideas. So here are the two uh, latest editions of the Michael Wong soundboard. Here's the first one. I'm pleased with the outcome. Yes, he's very happy with the outcome. <laughs> and the second one, quite famous, if you can recognize the uh, tempo, right? Seduced by the dark side, he was. So, <laughs> Michael Wong does Yoda. Um, you forgot the first half of the line. The uh, He was a good man. Seduced yeah. Seduced by the dark side, he was. I just felt that it, maybe it went on a bit too long, so maybe I'll, uh, maybe I'll add that in as a... As a uh, a further extended version a little bit later, but I just like the I, I like the uh, the shortened version of that line. Seduced by the dark side, he was. Yeah, I think we'll be able to work that in uh, quite frequently. So there you have I think it. For every every Jing movie, we had we had worked that in. Yeah, yeah. Um, <clears throat> so a couple more additions, more additions to come later. Again, I need to go back and and work through uh, quite a few Michael Wong films that I haven't seen. Uh, but slowly but surely, we'll build that soundboard out. For now, let's get on to the Hong Kong International Film Festival, which uh, has Michael Wong been spotted at the film festival? Do we know? Well, if he has, then um, he must have kept his disguise from nightfall or something because I haven't seen him around. Mm. And uh, or, or he didn't. There was no helicopter parked on the top of the cultural center, so he must oh, he must yes. have not shown up. Yes. Um, so yeah, I've been catching a few films. Actually, um, there are a few gripes. Um, but I'll talk about some of the films I watched uh, in the past week. Um, first, I caught um, Yuya Ishii, a Japanese indie director who was the first winner of the Edward Yang New Talent Award at the Asian Film Festival. Um, his latest film, Mitsuko Delivers, was uh, screened last Wednesday. So, of course, I went and caught it because I catch every Yuya Ishii film at the Hong Kong International Film Festival. Um, and, you know, I wasn't disappointed. It was a, it was a very fun comedy, very much his deadpan um comedic style and even acting style uh, very much the same, even though uh, as a different cast of actors. Uh, lots of fun. Um, let's see, Friday, I caught... Uh, Friday, I, I skipped a movie. <laughs> uh, I, I actually did skip a few movies uh, because of my schedule. I saw, But I did manage to catch uh, Saturday in a Japanese movie called Life Back Then from director uh, Zeze Takahisa. Um, he uh, last made the four-hour epic uh, Heaven Story, which I only saw the first half because I I bailed and did not watch the second half. Uh, a lot more commercial uh, tearjerker that's kind of closer to Departures, like a younger version of Departures because it deals with you know, mortality, death, and things like that. Um, not my favorite film in the festival. Uh, very strong first half, but really takes a turn for the worse in the second half. Um, I did see a much better film that night uh, called Nuclear Nation. It's a documentary from Japan. It is about um, the essentially the uh, the residents of the town that was right next to the Fukushima Daiichi power plant. Uh, so they were not only evacuated from the town, they were they they decided to take up shelter in a high school in the next prefecture. This left Fukushima. So this 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 documentary, a hundred forty minute documentary, follows um, their li life in the shelter, um, their eventual uh, very brief two hour return to the town to look at the damage. Uh, and the um, footage is actually quite quite amazing, seeing the damaged town, uh, what the tsunami did to it. Um, and, and of course, uh, the entire town is a ghost town because the, the government will, will be using it as a storage for nuclear waste over the next five years. Which means these people 
will, can never return to their home again. Um, so the film also also um, interviews the mayor, uh, who who of course um, who actually is, is quite amazing because he he was planning to um, he has been the town has been using the money the subsidy money from the power plant to essentially save itself because um, the infrastructure and everything they're all subsidized from the building of the power plant. So this is a town that flourished on this so-called nuclear money. And of course, now the mayor, after this catastrophe, there they, they of course he now regrets it. He's second, he's second guessing his decision to to make, to you know, build this town on nuclear money. So it's very very interesting documentary, and I think it's it's the best film I've seen at the festival so far. Um, I'll talk a little more about the next day because that's um, that kind of segues into the next topic. But uh, I also I also caught the Korean indie film Choked. That was okay, not much worth mentioning. Uh, I. I just um, got out of a screening of a Japanese indie film called Roadside Fugitive. Uh, about um, it's a continuation of of a film called Eight Thousand Miles about about a couple of uh, amateur rappers in a small town, and it's a continuation of that story. Um, really good music. Um, I think the story is really engaging. And um, I, if you if you like hip hop or if you like the Eminem movie Eight Mile, I think there's a very good Japanese take on it. Um, let's see. Last night. I went to catch Peter Chan's uh, Comrades a Love Story. Um, this is a very rare screening because um, the film actually hasn't been shown in Hong Kong for, I don't know, maybe 10 years because of uh, uh, um, copyright laws and uh, because it essentially Warner Brothers hosts the rights and wouldn't let it go. So this year, since Peter Chan's a filmmaker in focus, the, the film festival was able to secure a print. So it was a very rare screening of, of this classic film starring Leon Lai and Maggie Chun. And, um, it was my first time watching on a, on a big screen, but actually I was very disappointed because the show, maybe the, the hall, the cultural center grand hall was only filled by about half, only half the, the, the auditorium uh, was filled for this, you know, really great film. And I was quite surprised because half of that audience were watching the film for the first time. Hmm. It's, and it's I, kind of amazing. Do I remember correctly? You tweeted that the screen was dirty. Yeah, actually um, the cultural center, the grand theater is always, Essentially, it sets the standard for me for for the festival because it's a huge, huge venue. If you ever been in there, it's a huge venue. Um, it can sit about, I don't know, if they open all the levels, it can sit about nine hundred people. Um, so, and it's a big screen, big speakers, a huge hall. Essentially, yeah. what Hong Kong doesn't have anymore. It's and, but, and just to clarify a little bit, it's not just a it's not just a cinema house. It's actually a working stage theater. Yes, I've actually, seen I've seen a couple use, of uh, Jim Chim's stage shows there before. Isn't the the Hong Kong Film Awards also holding that? I think it's also holding there, holding there Hong Kong Film Awards. Uh, I'm not so, sure about that. Yeah, could be. I think it is, but um, it, 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 but yeah, so that that kind of gives you an idea how big that venue is, and usually that is the best theater for the festival. But this year, um, there's a really huge there there are literally dots in the middle of the screen. And if you know if you know what I'm talking about, Paul and Dynasty, you know they have this one whole portion of the screen that's dirty, right? And then the rest of it is clean. Yeah. So it, I don't know if it, I don't know if it's a case of it. It's actually dirty, or it's just like it's like a faded color on that right. section or something. So it's a it's a very right. visible visible difference on that one section of the screen. Yes. Yeah, so the same thing, this, a similar thing is happening to the cultural center screen. So I was quite appalled. Maybe, maybe that, it was you know, intentional. Maybe they were trying to put you in, in the moment, you know, as as cinemas would have looked like back in the nineteen uh, early nineteen nineties. 
No, I think I think they just rented. Uh, I think they just rented the screen. Dynasty had an extra <laughs> extra screen, and they were like, "Hey, can we rent it?" She was like, "Is there's a dirty part?" I said, "Don't worry about it. It's gonna be the film festival." So I was a little disappointed, but you know, it's still a very big call. The sound is also great, and you know, when the audience are really reacting to a film, they're really you know the atmosphere is electrifying, simply electrifying. It's, well, now, it's great. Well, let, let me let me pick your brain for a moment here because. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we talked about the uh, the Love Hong Kong Film uh, Awards poll, or not the awards, the uh, 80s poll that right. wrapped up last time. And if I remember correctly, in the 90s poll, uh, Comrades did fairly well. It's it's mm-hmm. a it's a highly regarded Hong Kong film, you know, even though it's Leon Lai, right? Um, <laughs> right. So why is why is the the what, you said it was Warner Brothers that has the rights? Why are they just sitting on it? Essentially, it's the same because it's Miramax it's does. it's out of print. I I have a I'm 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 ninety nine percent sure I have a copy, but it's back in the states, and I think it's a I want to say it's a Maya copy I have. Um, yeah, I think the yeah Maya. And but that's like the only one that exists out there, and that there's no unless you find it used on eBay or something, uh, you're not going to find it, right? Yeah. Um. The problem is it's the same thing what Miramax did when they bought up. A huge catalog of Shaw Brothers movies and older movies because they would rather hold the rights to it and and you know not have not be able to afford to release it, but they rather hold on to it so that others can get to it. Um, and I think Why? what happened. What, 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 it's it's senseless. I mean, this is what the, yes. I, this this to me in my mind is one of the arguments for file sharing, right? Right. Because you probably have a bunch of people. Leon Lai fans, maybe uh, I don't know, but you know you have probably have groups of people out there who who would love to see this film again, and who have no viable option unless somebody pulls a, a VCD rip or the DVD rip and, and puts it up on a, on a file share, because the yes. company doesn't have the time or the motivation to do anything. They're just going to sit on it because they can. Right? Yes. Um, I don't know. Yes, that, that, that just that rubs me the wrong problem. way for some reason. That is that is that is a really huge problem with Hong Kong cinema, um, especially in the '90s when rights holder they they would they only cared about making profit in the short term, ma- making back the money as soon as possible, and selling it off while caring about where it goes. So, and of course, you have Hollywood Hollywood companies who wanted to get those few hot titles and essentially have to buy up an entire catalog just to get those few hot titles. So. They, 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 and then they realize, of course, when they, once they got it, is that they can't afford to release the rest of it, but they would just sit on it until the rights the rights expire. I'm not sure if this Warner Brothers deal ever expire, but even the the host of the Q and A said that it was a very, very hard print to get. Um, so it was a very rare screening, which made me even more disappointed that it has such a low turnout because the film hasn't been screened on the big screen in maybe a decade. And it's a shame because it is it's still a great film and it plays very well to a large audience. They played very well on on the cultural center screen, and I was very happy to have this rare chance to see the film again. Mm. But um, we can talk about another. Actually, uh, now we can go back to Saturday because this segues into our next topic. Uh, on Saturday, or Sunday, which was April first, that is the anniversary, the ninth anniversary of uh, Leslie Cheung's death. Um, I went to watch. Uh, He's a woman. She's a man. Um, that's the right title, right? He's a woman, she's a man. Uh, the, the the classic romantic comedy starring Leslie Chen and, and Nina Yuan. And of course, the the screening was um, packed with Leslie fans. I was surrounded 
by the Leslie fans, and it was an amazing. And I did this last year, actually. I saw um, Days of Being Wild with those people last year. But this 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 year is a lot more different because it's a comedy, not a solemn, you know, drum art film. So mm-hmm. the atmosphere is a lot more different. You know, when when um, the name the name came up, when Leslie's name came up, of course there were applause. When when Leslie first Leslie's first scene when he sings um, "Twist and Shout," people were cheering, screaming, you know, like like they're seeing their idol on stage again. Um, and of course, they saw every punchline coming, and they laughed in advance. They started singing along. And if you remember the scene where um, when Leslie starts singing the, the theme song for the first time, he's on the piano and he's composing the song. I could hear sniffles because it was such a to them it brought back, you know, so yeah. so much emotions. Um, it was quite an interesting experience. Um, I think to mm-hmm. to watch this from a big audience, and of course Peter Chan was there um, with his, with his daughter. Um, apparently, this is the first that was the first time he saw a, a, a complete movie with his daughter, so it was quite an interesting occasion. And of course, he talked about Leslie a little bit. Um, but uh, actually, that brings up. Um, so I mentioned that on Twitter earlier. Yeah. Well, and before that, we get into that, I just want to jump in really quick. I, I looked sure. it up um, in the nine in the top films of the '90s poll over at uh, LoveHongKongFilm.com. Comrades, a love story was number eleven. Uh, came out in nineteen ninety six, and it had actually had seven first place votes. So, it, yeah, it is you know highly regarded. It still um, holds the record for having the most uh, awards at the in in uh, uh, I want to say love Hong Kong Film Award, but actually it's the Hong Kong Film Award history. Yes, it still holds the record for having the most amount of awards. Yeah. So you can tell how well regarded this film is. And he's a woman, she's a man. Came in at twenty eight. Uh, mm. Two years of course, I, think, I still 19, think Comrades a better film. Nineteen ninety four. I um, for me, um, it's a great film, but I would I would probably side with He's a Woman, She's a Man. It's more along my tastes and sensibilities for what I like uh, in film. Yeah. More in uh, more into the gender bending comedy. I really yes, yeah. <laughs> uh, and Jordan Chan's a riot. You know, you can't go wrong. <laughs> oh yeah, he was great. The scratching stuff. It brought back a lot of jokes, and of course, it was a really good time. People were reacting, um, and they were applauding, and they're watching it, going along with it as if they're watching it the first time. It, it was a, you know, it's great watching a comedy at the International Film Festival because everyone is so pumped up to watch the film they're about to watch, yeah. and even more so, you know, on such a, on such a, a special day on a momentous occasion. So. Um, but we want to go, we'll go back to what we we're talking about this morning. If people read our Twitter feeds, we start discussing um, whether there will be there is a possible for, especially next year's the 10th anniversary of his death. Um, so uh, one of the Q and A question was wh- whether um, it would be possible for Peter Chan to do um, a comments, comments almost a love story style film that is that uses Leslie Chan music. If you haven't seen Comments a Love Story, it, the whole story is kind of. The music of Teresa Tang plays a huge role in the story. So um, the audience essentially asking whether Peter Chan was thinking about doing that with Leslie's music, having a film where Leslie's music plays a big part in the story. Um, so that kind of brought a discussion this morning about whether uh, a Leslie Chan biopic will be possible, right, Paul? Yeah. Um, you know, for, for me... And the, the the main comment I made was I don't think it would work in in today's uh, with with the way that today's films are being made as sort of, you know the big films are pretty much all joint ventures uh, and I don't think that you could portray a a credible and accurate film to represent Leslie directly 
because it just wouldn't play in the mainland. You'd have to leave too many key aspects out, especially yes. of the later part of his life. And also, I mean, if you look at the kinds of biopics that have been, you know, produced in recent years, you've got Ip Man, uh, Bruce Lee, My Brother. I don't really think that, I don't know, I, it doesn't seem to me that there's the, the, the talent or the the intent to really pull it off. I mean, you know, 1996, you had Leon Lai, you had Maggie Chung. Leon Lai was one of the, you know, he was the, what, the, one of the four heavenly kings, right? Yes, uh, yes. Maggie Chung was sort of in the prime of her Hong Kong career and starting to branch out internationally at that time. Um, today, I just don't know. And for me, the, I, the, the big failure... I mean, the, 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 the worst possible result would be to get something like Frozen uh, from last year, yeah. which was kind of a tribute to earlier time periods, but just did not work as a movie. And I would hate uh, yeah, for actually, something like right. that to be done. Yes, that movie was essentially the... That was essentially what the, the, the audience wanted, essentially a film that uses the... That is based around the music of Leslie Chun, but it was a complete failure in terms of, I mean, story, the storytelling, the, the the acting, everything was a failure in that film. That is true, and actually, I wouldn't be, I'm not surprised that no one remembers that that film as the movie that used lessening music. Um, but I am actually of, uh, in a way, I, I do agree with you, Paul, in that yes, to tell an accurate portrayal uh, of Leslie's life. Um, you you can't um, it won't get past mainland censorship uh, because there's the whole thing with sexuality and uh, things like that um, and and because think, of that because of that if, if a director was going to come in and do it it would have to be somebody like a Peter Chan who could get financing and basically go ahead and say you know mainland be damned I'm going to make mm -hmm. this project because I want it to be made and I want it to be made well and I'm going to take a financial hit on it but you know, hopefully it'll be something that can survive over time. And I really, I, I don't know, I kind of think it's too soon. Um, it is, yes. And I think, I think, I think so as well because, you know, fans today they still see Leslie for his, you know, for his. Um, they let his work speak for himself. Uh, they let his work speak yeah. for him. They they don't talk about the nature of his death. And essentially, the media doesn't talk about the nature of his death. Um, it essentially is a very fresh wound. Um, in and I think the, the, and, for yeah. me, the same holds very much true for uh, Anita Moy, whose anniversary, will, not this year, but the uh, December, I think, of 2013 is her 10th anniversary of her passing. And she was, I mean, I liked Leslie a lot, but Anita was a huge, huge influence. I mean, I saw her, I was very fortunate to see her twice in concert in the U.S., and uh, she was just one of those, one one of the main reasons that got me to come to Hong Kong. Um, mm. And I would hate to see something, you know, to represent her in the same manner that was just not done with a lot of thought and, and a lot of care and a lot of attention. And I really think it's too soon for anything like that. And of course, if you want to do something um, about the darker side of their lives, um, for Anita, her, her relationships, yeah. uh, for Leslie, of course, his, his, his struggle with sexuality, who would give who is willing, who is still alive, um, is willing to give that information. Yeah. Um, in the discussion this morning with, uh, I think, uh, Sandy, a friend of the site and a friend of the, the, the podcast, of course, he talked about um, Center Stage. He cited Center Stage as an example of a biopic of a star. But, of course, that was made, you know, decades yeah. 
after uh, running use def. And you so, can find you can find. I mean, you know, to talk about um, he's he's a woman, she's a man. The sequel, who's the woman, who's the man, um, which had Anita in it. There were actually elements in that that were very reflective of Anita and some aspects of her life and her upbringing, and, and was in some ways a little bit self-referential, um, mm-hmm. you know, to her, to her. And I know that there was a, there was a TVB drama in the nineties too, the name escapes me that was about her, but it wasn't, I mean, they changed the names and everybody, but everybody, uh, for, for the characters, but everybody knew it was, you know, fully about her and, and, uh, a representation of her life and career. Yeah. Um, but I mean, I think yes, there is an interesting biopic uh, in Leslie's life. But um, one, I think, is too soon, and two, you know, it wouldn't get made. And of course, three is not what fans want to see. I think fans, I think if you know non-fans who want to know about this big star's life, um, this legend, legend, you know, the screen icon's life, I think it, it would be a very interesting project. But I think for fans, they would rather remember him, you know as the star, as the, the, the performer, as the actor, yeah. um, as the man who is, you know, always proud of who he is, but not for essentially how the na- nature of his death or, you know, what he battled with uh, towards the later years of his life. Yeah, I agree. All right. Uh, one final bit of news to talk about this week, and that is this little bit of odd news that just uh, I stumbled across with regard to James Cameron. Now, James Cameron, of course, has been in the news because he's been at the bottom of the ocean uh, in the recent weeks, uh, traveling, and tweeting from there. <laughs> yeah, traveling to the lowest lowest point uh, on the on the planet, as far as you know, as at least as far as we know right now. The, yeah, how does how does he tweet from there? I mean, what service provider is he using? It's it's certainly not one of the Hong Kong based ones. Um, AT and T must have a super five G connection. Yeah, then. I mean, they I want I want that service, but um. I came across this news. Uh, basically, this is a story that said um, when Titanic was now Titanic's getting a 3D release. Now, I don't know if that's you know big news for, for the listeners out there or not. It's not big news for me. I'm not planning to go and watch in 3D. But uh, this little bit of news said that originally um, an, an American astronomer accused the original film of having the wrong star field for the time and date of a particular scene. Um, okay. Mm-hmm. And okay. I, I believe this came from uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson, who's uh, you know a somewhat prominent uh, person in uh, you know astronomy, and you, you can see him on television from time to time. Um, and so Cameron, uh, you know, challenged him and said, you know, if you if you can send me the exact data, uh, I'll fix it. And so that's exactly what he did. Uh, he went into this 3D version and he changed it so that in that scene the star field is now accurate for the time and the date he pulled a george lucas yes that's exactly what i said i was talking with uh our friend marco sparnberg uh today and i said you know he's cameron's becoming more and more like george lucas what's next jar jar binks and avatar 2 um so yeah but i mean that's the power that you have when you are a uh, uh you know the howard hughes of modern society i guess Yes, but you know, you know, James Cameron doesn't fix the movie on the whim. You know, he doesn't he doesn't change his movie. You know, from you know, didn't change the entire plot point. For example, Han, you know, Han Solo shooting first, um, or Han Solo not shooting first. You know, he's changing it. He's always been a science freak. 
And if he's changing, you know, something to in the name of science and name of making it something more accurate, then you know, power, you know, power to him for making the effort. Yes. He blinded me with science. <laughs> All right. Uh, so I think that's it for news this week. Uh, anything else you want to throw in there, Kevin? Nope, but I think we need a Michael Wong sound. Uh, Michael Wong sound. Uh, anything about use... news? No. Um, how about this one? I'm the, the genie inside the pearls, like the man in the Aladdin. Yeah, there's science for you. All right. Uh, <laughs> all right, so let's move on and talk about some film. All right, so we have uh, one e-screen film to talk about this week, and that is the latest film from Pang Ho Chung, a sequel, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I think this is his first sequel ever, uh, Love in the Buff. Kevin, why don't you tell us a little bit, little bit about Love in the Buff? Sure. Um, yes, Paul, you're right. Uh, this is the first sequel in uh, director Pang Ho Chung's career. Um, anyone who knows me knows that I'm a huge Pang Ho Chung fan, so... Um, I, I, I kind of took this news really mixed reaction. Not only is he making his first sequel, which is by by certain logic, it makes it his most commercial film already because, you know, the nature of a sequel, um, but also because he is setting this film in Beijing um, a, a little more later. But uh, Love in the Buff uh, brings back uh, his stars, uh, Miriam Yun and Sean Yu as um, Sherry, uh, a girl who works at Sephora, and Jimmy, an advertising man. Uh, at the end of the last film, Love in the Puff, they, they after a week of courtship, uh, they decide to not only quit smoking, but also to, you know, get into a relationship. So we take off, um, it's kind of an extended epilogue. We start six months into their relationship, um, and the honeymoon period is about over. They're living together now. But um, Jimmy um, has started to put work commitments uh, essentially ahead of his uh commitments to Sherry, which includes a family with her dinner and, you know, meeting her for meeting her and her friends. Um, when among, among all those work commitments is an offer to go work for his old boss, uh, played by Jim Chim in, in Beijing, because it's actually a, a true, is a reality right now that many Hong Kong advertising people are moving up to Beijing because of the bigger market. Um, but because of those commitments to Sherry that he missed, um, Sherry decides to move out of the house and the two eventually break up and so Jimmy takes off to Beijing. Uh, a couple months later, uh, Sherry, um, because of Sephora, is withdrawing from the market, which is true because they're no longer in Hong Kong now, uh, Sherry gets sent to Beijing to run a store. Um, so she also moves up to Beijing and uh, she is eventually reunited with Jimmy on the streets, but uh, she also discovers that now Jimmy is with uh, a much younger and hotter flight attendant, played by personal favorite Minnie Yang. Um, so, so of course, any chance of recon- reconciliation is 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 totally quashed from there. Uh, but Sherry also eventually meets a uh, rich electrical engineer, uh, played by Shu Zheng from Crazy Stone. Um, his name is Sam, a very nice, nice, uh, kind, caring man who who really actually likes Cherry and and um, and instead she wants to be over. But um, eventually Jimmy and Sherry they can't let go of their past relationship and of course start a fling. So uh, ironically, they are now they're both they now have this affair um, that is that is going essentially cheating on their respective significant others. So 
now the two have to make a choice whether they should dump their perfectly normal relationships with their with their boyfriends or girlfriends, uh, or or essentially get back together and uh, continue their old relationship. Uh, so this is a very, like I said earlier, is is a uh, very is essentially Pound Trump's first mainland co-production. It's his first film uh, shot in the mainland. Uh, so of course everyone must be worried. Um, is Pound has Pound Trump been tamed for the mainland market? Uh, the answer is kind of a yes. Uh, there is some sanitizing of the film for Beijing, but it's nothing really to worry about. It's just um, some mild, uh, essentially, edits of any mentions of premarital sex is gone. Um, some verbal mention, but any scenes um, of it is essentially not in the film, even though sex actually plays a quite a big part in the story this time. Um, but if you fell in love with the first film for the foul language, the Cantonese foul language, it is still here. Um, and it's still got a 2B, despite, you know, actually, I didn't even count how many foul languages was there, but it, it was quite a bit. I think it was almost as much as Love in the Puff. So don't worry, the crude humor, uh, the crude verbal humor is still here. Um, of course, you, you probably also worry whether you should watch the first film before you watch this sequel. And I would say, um, try to watch the first film if you can, because um, there's a lot of old jokes from the first film, a lot of references to the first film that is brought back. Uh, in fact, I would call Love in the Buff Pang Chun's first fan service movie, where he is essentially um, uh, uh, um, winking at fans of the first film by by repeatedly bringing references to those to 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 the first film. Um, but of course, if you haven't seen the first film, it should be okay. I think Paul, you might want you might want to go in depth a little bit later. Um, Nevertheless, it has, uh, despite being this crude, of course, crude romantic comedy, it does have real insights about relationships. Um, the the emotions are heavier this time. The the characters are dealing with um, more serious issues and tougher choices. So it is definitely Powertron's most mature film uh, in a way. Uh, but it's also definitely commercial um, in terms of using uh, verbalized realizations, essentially monologues, to express uh, how the the um, characters of feelings and of course you have your 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 typical rom romantic comedy cliches like someone is chasing after someone um at, at the airport uh thing as a, as a climax uh things like that a lot of rom-com cliches that i was surprised to see power use uh it also does bite off more than more it can more it also bites off more than it can chew with the the beijing elements by setting the film in beijing and by having the characters go to Beijing for their careers uh, as a main part of the plot, it actually ignores how Jimmy and Sherry deal with their new environment or their new work environment. Um, I think because because Chan was already uh, juggling so many things at the same time that he either couldn't fit it in or he shot it and cut it out. Uh, I'm not sure, but it's actually quite distracting that how they adjust to the new work environment is, is totally not in the film. For some reason, the two already speak, you know, workable Mandarin instead of, you know, having struggling with the language and, and things like that. It's totally not in the film. Um, as a result, I think Love in the Buff doesn't really completely fulfill its potential. Uh, I think it is perfectly satisfying as a romantic comedy, but, um, and it, of course it's smart and it, it, it very cleverly balances the need of both you know, mainland China Chinese commercial audiences and, of course, Hong Kong audiences who like the first film as what it is, uh, foul-mouth comedy. Uh, so actually well done for Pao Chan because of his ability to do this. Um, 
But I was slightly disappointed because of this astronomical um, expectations that I have after hearing uh, word from the first screenings that there's a really great film. Paltrow's best film is even better than the first film. I would say it's not. I think the first film is still a little better, uh, even though there's a lot to love about this movie. And it will be a hit and deservedly so, I think. Um, so, you know, good work to Paul Chan. I mean, he, he's working, he's been working in the film industry for 10 years, and it's about time that he finally gets his second commercial hit. So, um, definitely, definitely, definitely see it. See Love in the Buff. Uh, Paul? Um, yeah, it's, uh, you know, it's a solid sequel, I think, and uh, it really does build on many aspects of the first film. You don't need to see the first film. I mean, he, the, the, the narrative he uses here uh, puts you in a place to where you get to know the characters in such a way that you don't need to have seen the first film, but you should, um, because it yeah. will really enhance the the experience that much more. Um, I think the Brenda character, the Brenda character itself, I mean, deserves to because it is that character is brought back from the first film, yeah, and has well, such a it's pretty expanded. much all of the characters that are in the first film. You, um, you know that at least from her little click. And and from his uh, office, you get you know a, a marginal glimpse of it at some point. But the, yeah, the Brenda character does have a much more major role uh, this time. Um, but but even so, if you were if you simply said oh, you know I'm not gonna I don't want to go out and buy the DVD. I just want to go out and, and watch this. I think you'll still have a a fairly enjoyable experience. Um, the the leads in part carry the film. They're great. They have great chemistry together. That was apparent in the first film. I think it's apparent here. You know, last week I talked about the second woman, the 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 film with Shu Chi and and Sean Yu, and he was such a wet blanket in that film. And it's such a difference to see him in this film or in the in in Love and a Puff compared with that film. And it really shows how a director can have an influence on a character and an actor and can bring out different levels, um, um, you know, for, for an actor in his ability to convey ideas and to convey, convey sensibilities and convey feeling. Um, because the, the film he did last week, it was just like, it, it was, it was totally uninteresting and it was in part, not so much the character, but just his performance of the character. And it's a, almost a complete contrast to his character of Jimmy, uh, for these two films, um, I think I think it's, it's I think his character maybe resembles more of his personality because if you see him in um, the publicity for the film, he really loves to fool around, yeah. you know, with Pang Chan and joke around. And I think the fact that this character kind of reflects more of his personality is more yeah. playful. That, side, that, I think that, that there's probably a lot of truth in that. Um, the The sequel here looks better. It's prettier. You know, but it's uh, it also feels a lot more staged to me. Yeah. Um, there are some really great moments. There are some some in jokes and some cameos. I won't spoil uh, what they are. And I, I will say, thankfully, we have YouTube, so that you know somebody like me who is interested enough to go and dig up some of the cultural context that's being discussed, I can go and find it, and it and it it makes it that much more meaningful. For me, um, you know, which is not something we could have done a decade ago. So I, I, I'm in a happy place when I can do that <laughs> with a film. When a film can, you know, make reference to something, and I may not understand it right away in the film because I wasn't around when that event happened. But 
I can go and I can, you know, do a little research and I can, I can experience it, you know, uh, in sort of the post follow-up period. Uh, so I'm, I'm very happy that we have things like this. Um, but I, again, I don't want to spoil the, the, the cameo moments, so I won't mention them here, but they are really, really good. And, and I will, you know, if people are interested, uh, you know, I can, you know, Kevin, you tweeted some links and, and, I can put links up on the website, but again, I, to put up too much would be too spoilerish. So, um, yes. it's only it's only if you're you're gonna see the film and you want some further insight, you know, you can send us an email or or drop us some comments, and we can provide those links for you. Um, so yes, yeah, so definitely great... watch the music video that I tweeted. The yeah. music video, yeah, the the yeah. music video. I'll put that up on the site. That that actually appears in the film, so that's not really a spoiler, but it it's it's very useful. For watching the entire film, the entire video, because uh, it only appears for like a few seconds on screen, you you get the general sense. But it's much better if you watch the whole thing. Um, I would say in comparison with the first film, though, this one really lacks what I would call the pang feel that he's established in things like You Shoot, I Shoot, or Isabella, um, you know, or or Men Suddenly in Black. Um, this to me comes across as, as pretty much a straight up rom-com for the mainland. Um, you know, to me, it felt a lot like, um, what was it? A uh, go, la, la, go, mm-hmm. um, and, and, or Sophie's, Sophie's revenge in, in some ways in that it's so pretty, it's so polished. It's got some good writing. It's got great acting. Um, but it doesn't have that element that seems to make Pang Ho Chung films, what they are, at least the ones he's done before. Particularly, it doesn't feel much organic, right? Yeah, and, and as Definitely. you know, one of the things that's missing here that was I felt so very central to the first film was the interviews, right? Because mm-hmm. the first film, you know, sort of spaced throughout it, you have interviews of these characters, which are done sort of as you know straight up documentary style Q and A sessions about. Uh, the smoking law about the the characters Jimmy and Shuri and and you know just general views on that and that gives a really different style and feel uh, than this film and I think I preferred that a little bit more I, I kept expecting to see that here when we when we didn't get it um, I don't know I felt a little bit of of lack I might say um, you know and to you know, there was some discussion about some of this going back and forth on Twitter with different people, and, and um, some of you might know Shelley Crazier. I think you met him, right, Kevin? Yes, yes, yeah. I finally got to meet him. Yes. Um, unfortunately, I've never had a chance to meet him, but I do follow him on Twitter, and I've followed his work for a while. But he had a comment. He said that he felt that this was a, a somehow a subtle commentary or a poke at uh, Beijing. And I'd, I'd be very interested, I, I, maybe he's going to write about it, um, and if he does and you come across it, let me know, Kevin, um, mm-hmm. because I, I'm, I'm guessing he's going to write a review or put it in a book or something. I'm very interested to know what he meant by that in, in more detail, because I saw it more as a commentary on Hong Kongers, because the Beijing we, we see here is, is, is very you know, clean, it's very pretty, um, but, and maybe that's what he meant, but from the character's perspective... The Hong Kong characters were super flawed. Um, you know, uh, the, the, the crew that came up with, with Sean Yu's character, um, you know, they're, they're fooling around, they're foul-mouthed, um, 
you know, Sean Yu himself and, and Cherie, they're, they're, you know, they don't have commitment in, in their relationships with their partners. And their partners are the ones who are the sort of the upstanding, um, uh, you know, how would you, how would you call it? The, the, the moral rocks of the film, right? Um, for example, the, the, the character that Cherie gets involved with, he's, you know, in, in many ways, best he's like, a, he's like a best man ever kind of character. Um, you know, and, and maybe that's sort of a, a lampooning of certain aspects of, 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 of mainland China. I don't know, but for me, I really read it as, you know, these, these very progressive, these very liberal Hong Kongers, um, you know, being ultimately flawed in, in the scope of mainland identity. So uh, did you get I a similar how, idea? I think how I would, uh, one can read it is actually Pao Chen talking about the, the state of Hong Kong filmmakers mm. going to, to going up north. Um, essentially, Minian character or even, you know, Sam character, Sam character represents, you know, it's a, it's a bigger, it's a more attractive market. It's a more attractive and, you know, anyone who doesn't go for them is a fool. But the Hong Konger or, you know, Jimmy or, or Cherry, um, there's a sense of sentimentality that attached to it. There's a sense of connection. There's a sense of familiarity that mm-hmm. it's hard to shake, that you can't let go. So I think essentially it's not only talking about Pang himself, who actually moved up to Beijing two years ago um, and has been living in Beijing in the last two years. I think also talk about you know other Hong Kong filmmakers yeah. trying to make movies uh, in this new market. I, I, so... Or even even Hong Kongers in general who have drifted up north. That's the, yeah. the term we use. And drifting. This up is north. certainly not a new theme. I mean, the last McDowell movie was, was right. You know, working with the same idea too of the right. the displaced Hong Konger who is no longer able to find uh, you know work or find financial success in the region now has to look to the mainland and they become sort of the other. They become the fish out of water. But here, I, I think it's very smart that it works in works into a, a roman, romance that, of course, Pao Chen would never admit to to saying that he made that kind of allegory mm. uh, in public. But it's very smart that he made it so that you can kind of read it that way, and that it kind of represents himself, his own dilemma about you know working this new market. I think it's very interesting uh, how he works it in, if if it's true. Of course. Mm. Um, I, th- I think the other aspect. I mean, you mentioned too that there's a little bit of a the, the theme and focus a little bit is, you know, the advertisers having to go up north, and that is sort of based on some of what is actually happening. So it is, you know, sort of current and contemporary, but I didn't find that anywhere near as interesting as the whole smoking theme of the first film. Maybe in part because I, you know, I was here living, I'm I'm not a smoker, but, uh, you know, I, I understand the changes. I've seen the physical changes that happened, you know, the 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 whole culture of what they call dabino or hot pot, um, you know, as it relates to smoking and standing around in the garbage cans here in Hong Kong, um, and I'm sure you know you Kevin probably relate to it even more. Um, I kind of felt you know I, I, that that's another reason I think the first film's a little bit more attractive to me. But let's talk a little bit about the financial success. I mean, this film's doing gangbusters, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. It's done. I, I'm not sure about the China numbers yet uh, because it hasn't been released, but um, it's done very well in Hong Kong. Actually, in the first four days, uh, first four days, four days plus the, the weekend of previews, it's already surpassed um, the, the, the total gross of the first film. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, actually, the first film itself was a miracle because the opening day was actually very disappointing, and the film was a very slow builder until it got up to six point eight million, which actually is already one of highest one of Pang's highest grossing films in Hong Kong. But for the sequel to essentially beat that number within three days, it's actually quite amazing. Yeah. Uh, it's already now broken the ten million million mark. It will break um, Pang's highest grossing film, which is Men's Sunday in Black. I think in about twelve or thirteen mil. It's gonna make twenty million. Uh, Hong Kong dollars, mm-hmm. which makes it one of the biggest. It might even actually, which beats most of the Lunar New Year movies in Hong Kong. Yeah. So it's quite amazing. I'm not sure why. Maybe of course fans of the first film and also word of mouth, but I'm not. Sh- and of course people who caught up, you know, downloading or DVD or whatever, you know, they they anticipate the film. And of course, good word of mouth is yeah. traveling in Hong Kong. People are really loving this movie. Uh-huh. Uh, I'm, um, yeah. And so I think I think this this whole thing about Pound Chen making a commercial film. It really worked out for him because this is indeed his most commercial film. But this then begs the question: Do we see another sequel coming out of this franchise? He's already thinking about it. He's, he's already promised that he's he's already thinking about ideas. Actually, mm-hmm. uh, and the stars I think seem very game on doing it. And in fact, he said that most of the when he announced the, the sequel, actually almost everyone who worked on the first film, including the actors and people who made cameos, all went to Pan Lushan and said, "You know, I'll do it." Let me do it. Let me work on the film. Mm. So it seems like even if this one's a bigger success, I think there's definitely interest in the third film, even though I don't think it'll be as good anymore. Yeah, I, you know, trilogies are kind of hard to... I, that, that, that has me a little bit nervous, a little bit worried if he starts to go in that direction. But, you know, that's where the money is, so yeah, you can't but, blame but him if he does go that way. Yes, but you know, I, I, I did not... I, I also was worried about, you know, the Beijing setting for this film, and I was glad how 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 well he balanced the two tastes. I think this film will will connect to mainland audiences, um, in in its in its in its um the relationship yeah. stuff. And I think um it's obviously it's connected to you Hong Kongers. It, it it might just be me, but it, in a in a few places it did kind of feel like if you are the one. Mm-hmm. Uh, in, in some ways, uh, I would I would see see a similar feeling um, in in some of the some of the. Some of the style, some of the, some of the, you know, the, the way the characters interact, um, particularly Cherie's relationship, um, sort of the, you know, the off-putting, the undecisiveness, uh, we, we kind of saw that as a theme in, uh, in if you are the one. Um, yeah, but you know, if you ask me, I think this is one of the most successful, if not the most successful, example of a director who, a Hong Kong director who is able to make a film. For China, that also serves the needs of the Hong Kong audience because he did not only he didn't just move to Beijing to make this movie. Mm-hmm. He lived there for two years. He produced uh, a set of short films. He he wrote he he wrote he actually wrote an entire column, a continuous column in uh, a magazine that that answers um, romance romance questions from his readers just to understand the perspective of mainlanders. Mm. So. Um, so it's not like he just kind of yeah. happened upon, well, upon did, this ability. He, he did his research, to, you, know. you know. Do this. Uh, he did his yes. research. Yes, and I think it worked out quite well. So Kenneth in the chat room asks, um, "What is considered a good to decent box office these days?" Um, well, I mean, if you think about last year, I mean, of course, the outlier last year was Three uh, Seconds Zen. Um, so that made forty mil. But if you look at the Lunar New Year movie, which did about twenty, around roughly twenty, that's well, essentially, once you pass ten, is a hit. Um, unless you're a Lunar New Year movie, if you just 
past 10, then it's kind of disappointing. But if you're a movie that's opening late March and you get 20 mil, that's very, very impressive. Especially a romantic, probably a romantic comedy. Yeah, so, uh, you know, final verdict for me is definitely a, a see it, um, arguably up there with the top films of the year so far and likely remain so um, throughout the course of the year. Yep. All right, let us move on to talk about some West Screen. East Screen, West Screen. All right, for West Screen this week, we have one film, and that is the latest uh, novel adaptation, The Hunger Games. Uh, this is a film directed by Gary Ross, coming from the novels, the very somewhat famous novels by Suzanne Collins, although they are a little bit controversial, and I'll talk a little bit about uh, some of the controversial aspects of them in just a moment. But Gary Ross, as the director, um, he's got quite a bit of production experience behind his belt as both a producer uh, and mostly as a writer, uh, and he's got credits including Big, uh, Mr. Baseball, Dave, uh, Lassie, 1994. Um, as director, Pleasantville and Seabiscuit. Uh, this is uh, his third directing debut. Uh, not really a debut, but his third directing gig. And he will be, he's signed on to do the sequel to this, which I believe is called Catching Fire, um, to be coming out uh Look, it says 2013. That seems kind of quick. I don't know if they're doing these back to back. Twilight could do it, so you know they must be able to do it here. Yeah. So uh, this uh, this story, The Hunger Games, uh, basically takes place in a in a science fiction based sort of po- post apocalyptic uh, future. Um, there's a there's a, a, a nation state called Panem, and it's basically got a very wealthy uh, centralized state that's surrounded by 12 poor districts. Um, these districts exist as a punishment for a rebellion against the government, which happened in some previous time. And part of the resulting um, culture uh, of this post-war era is that the capital has this thing called the Hunger Games, which is sort of an annual televised event in which a boy and a girl from each of the 12 outlying poor district districts are selected as you know, in, in a lottery-style fashion, uh, as tributes where they're taken to the capital and they are have it, they're put to the test by fighting to the death against each other in an arena until there is only uh, one remaining victor. Right. So, twelve kids enter, one kid leaves. Um, and so, this follows the story of the protagonist, a, a character named uh, Katniss Everdeen, who's played by Jennifer Lawrence. Um, she basically steps up when she hears her younger sister's name called as a tribute, and she volunteers to take her place. Um, she is uh, sent along with another character from her district named Pita, and the two travel to the capital. They become they get trained under the guidance of a former winner from their district named Haymitch, who's played by Woody Harrelson. Um, they're trained for the games, and they're put into the arena, and they have to fight. Uh, so that sort of serves as sort of the basis of, of the plot. And you, the, the film here takes you into this world. It introduces you to the characters, and you sort of follow along in their journey. You start out in um, uh, District 12, um, which I, I, I believe is the district that, that, uh, that Katniss and, and, and Peter are from. And you go from this sort of very gray uh, coal mine, because they're, they're the coal mining district, 
um, you're taken from this sort of very gray looking, uh, washed out, uh, just, it, it, you know, it looks like the grapes of wrath, basically. Um, and they, they're taken into this very bright, colorful city. It's kind of like Mardi, a 24 hour Mardi Gras. Um, and this is where, you know, the, the, basically the one percenters live, right? So talk about the 99%, they're in the outlying districts and the one percenters, they're here in the capital. So, uh, that sort of sets up the basis. Uh, in, in a way you might look at this as a warning message to the 99%. Don't rebel in the future against the 1% or, or this is, you know, the possible dystopia that you might face. Um, I, to be clear, I did not read the books, uh, don't intend to, uh, but that being said, the film was better than I expected, but it's still a little bit twilighty. And I, and I posted that fact on, I don't know what it was, get glue over the weekend. And boy, did the fans come out of the woodwork. I got several comments, people saying, what do you mean? It's, it's twilighty. How? That's ridiculous. Um, so, you know, there's a lot of fandom that surrounds this, and to compare it with Twilight at all is is uh, considered a sin, somehow. Um, but that's what I felt. I felt that it, 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 is, it is catering to the Twilight demographic, and depending on how you feel about that, might affect your, you know, desire to see the film. It certainly affected mine, but as I said, it was better than I expected. Um, I'd say it's better than Twilight, for at least for me. Maybe because it's sci-fi, and because we don't have sparkly vampires. Um, but the character, you know, the, the the main the main reason I say it's Twilight is because there is sort of this love triangle that slowly raises its head, mostly towards the end of the film. Uh, there's a character named Gale, who is uh, sort of the best friend of Katniss, and um, I want to say it's uh, he's a Hemsworth or Helmsworth, the the, the is it Chris Helmsworth who plays Thor? Yes. Um, yeah, it's like his cousin or his brother or or something like that. Uh, his what's his name? Liam Helm, Hemsworth is his his name. Um, so he's related to Thor. Uh, but here, the way they've got him looking, he's sort of the 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 the, the husky, dark, you know, character, and and he kind of looks like Jacob a little bit, at, at least to me. Um, whereas uh, Peta, who becomes sort of the other. Uh, male in the triangle and, you know he's kind of uh, sort of this blonde kid and he's kind of a little bit opposite uh, of Gale I'm guessing that this is gonna have further ramifications in in the later later sequels I mean I'm sure if fans out there have read the books they already know everything that's coming I have no expectations and as I said I don't intend to read the books but I think that'll make the movies a little bit more entertaining for me because I don't know what to expect um, so yeah, it does it, just a little bit of a Twilight kind of feel to it. Um, it also is controversial because of the parallels to the Japanese film Battle Royale, which of course was based on books and has been made into mangas, which predate the books uh, created by the author, um, Susan Collins. And of course, there were statements where she came out and basically said, she had never had, she'd never seen Battle Royale. She'd never read anything about it. Um, you know, it's just, you know, one of those things. It's a coincidence. Uh, maybe it is, maybe it's not. I don't know. I'm not here to judge her. But the parallels are certainly there because you have kids for, you know, in a dystopic future forced into this 
enclosed space, you know, an arena, as it were, where they're watched, they're monitored, um, they've got a, a thing that prevents them from escaping, and, uh, you know, they have to fight, you know, violent battles to survive. So it does have those elements. To look at the two films in comparison, I'd say here, the world that's created, um, you know, maybe by the author, maybe by the, the production designers, at least for the film, far more interesting than the, you know, Battle Royale film world. That is much smaller in scale. You really don't get to see much of what Japan has become. It's only hinted at. You're basically, you basically got the kids in the classroom and then they're on the island and they're fighting. Um, here you've got this whole transition period from the outlying districts into the central district and the clash of cultures and, you know, the, the shift from the, the very poor to the very wealthy. Um, the, you know, so it, the focus on the world for me was, was a lot more interesting. But the conflicts, when it actually comes time for the kids to get into the, into the battle zone and to fight, I, you know, they, they just don't compare to the conflicts in Battle Royale. Battle Royale was a Category 3 or what we would consider a rated R film, um, you know, in, in the States. It was very violent, very gory in some cases. Um, this kind of takes a little bit lighter approach. I mean, there is some violence, but it's really toned down. Um, and it, that's because it's trying to appeal to the widest variety possible. And I, and I was having a very interesting discussion today with um, with Marco, as I mentioned, and he said this is the problem of Hollywood film, that it takes this broad sweeping brush and tries to get everything that it can to, to cover as many demographics as it can. And so as such, it becomes, you know, sort of a jack-of-all-trades, master-of-none. Um, it, it's not got enough violence in it to appeal to people who like a lot of violence, it's got a little bit of that twilight element in there that kind of can seem out of place at certain moments. Um, you know, some people, there, there was also the controversy that we mentioned, you know, with regards to the casting. Um, you know, to, to that end, I say, you know, there, the, the, the main controversy was uh, Lenny Kravitz has a role. He was fine. I thought he was awesome in, in, in the character he played. Um, the other one was about a character named Rue. Was it Rue? Or uh, the girl, the little girl. Yeah, Rue, right. uh, played by Amanda Stenberg. I mean, c cute as can be. I mean, I just don't see why people have a problem with her. I mean, I know you you get stuck on loving a book, but you know to really say some of the hateful things out there, guys. Come on, you can just I don't know. STFU. That's what I say because she's <laughs> just she's just adorable, and she wasn't in the movie all that much. I mean, I was. I was hoping to see more of her than, than, than they actually showed. Um, for me, I really love the adults in the film, Woody Harrelson and uh, some of the other, you know, um, other roles. You have people like uh, uh, Lenny Kravitz, Stanley Tucci was awesome, uh, Donald Sutherland, can't believe he's still alive and, and kicking and doing, doing what he's doing. Uh, but he was great as the president. Um, and uh, Wes Bentley was, was really good in his role. He's got this really wicked-looking... Um, I don't know who did his makeup, but the design of his beard, man, talk about meticulous. Um, that was really, really good. So a lot of really good art design, a lot of good production design. Um, and those parts really attracted me. I'd say that, you know, overall, um, 
you know, there's something here for everybody, but maybe not enough of it to please everybody. Um, but I'd say see it, you know, it's, um, it's doing very well. It's broken quite a few records. It's entertaining for what it is. And yeah, I mean, it's, uh, it's not bad. See it. All right. Then I guess I will. Yeah. All right. Uh, let us move on. I think we have a, we have a Blu-ray to talk about this week. So let me play this. The East is Blue. Wait, what? All right, so for our video pick of the week, I want to talk a little bit about the Love in a Puff Blu-ray. Now, do you have this, Kevin? Yes, yes, yeah. I do. I haven't packed um, it out in a while. So I picked this up specifically last week. I'd been holding off for, for a while, and uh, I finally went because I wanted to watch it with, uh, with the wife because she had not seen it. I had seen it before, I think on a plane. Uh, I watched it on one of my... Uh, trips to or from Hong Kong, and uh, so I had already seen it uh, a long time ago, but I figured, well, I want to watch it again and sort of refresh my memory before I watch the sequel, so I went out and uh, tracked down the Blu-ray. The Blu-ray is a, a Megastar uh, distribution. It's uh, listed as full HD, 1080p. It looks really good, uh, the, the the quality of the, the the print and the resolution comes out really nice on a Blu-ray player. Um, the film itself has, uh, three audio tracks, uh, one DTS and two, one DTS for Cantonese and, uh, two Dolby, uh, 5.1, uh, for Cantonese and Mandarin for, of course, featuring subtitles, traditional Chinese, simplified Chinese and English. Um, I went back to see if we actually reviewed the film and I could not find, um, could not find it in the archives. We might've covered it, but I don't. Uh, I didn't oh. have a tag listed for it, so it's, it wasn't coming up. But I think you reviewed it. I'll have to go back and. I'm and pretty check. sure it was two years ago. Yeah. yeah. Um, so the film the film looks really good um, from the Blu-ray perspective. Uh, it's uh, 102 minutes long and uh, has some special features. Now let me focus a little bit on the special features. It's got an audio commentary by the directors and the actors, which is always good. Um, it has you know the standard trailer. It has uh, a making of. Now, the making of is only eight minutes long. Uh, no English subtitles. And the making of is actually a series of short snippets of uh, little makings of. And I, I guess you probably would have seen these on some of the, uh, you know, like Roadshow or some of the, if you ride the buses here in Hong Kong, um, they'll put these little making of moments, you know, for people to see. And they'll be, you know, two or three minutes long. And so this is sort of a collection of those. Uh, at least that's the way it seems. Um, the making of, again, you know, no English subtitles, but it does have uh, Chinese traditional and Chinese simplified subtitles. Uh, behind the scenes is, um, is another section. Um, there are, and, and that one's about 13 minutes long. There are uh, basically two of the sets that they were working on. One was the love hotel set and the other was the karaoke uh set where they were where miriam and her friends were at a party and they were all dressed up in cosplay um and so that's the footage for the behind the scenes is basically taken from there and it's basically some of the downtime uh no subtitles here uh, either and i no chinese subtitles either um so it's just basically somebody's got a camera it looks like they were shooting for maybe some of the making of footage and this was the footage they didn't use 
So that is just call it behind the scenes. And you get to see basically people setting around, standing around. You get to see director Chung giving them some directions and some blocking and things like this. Um, it can be interesting if you, you know, if you, if you like to be a fly on the wall, um, and watch some of the stuff going on. Um, if you're not interested in that, it can be, you know, kind of a non-event, kind of boring. The uh, final feature is deleted scenes. Now, this is pretty long. This is about 29 minutes. And in some in some areas, it starts with a scene that's in the film and has some parts that didn't make it in. Um, so um, it, you'll see a scene that is that you, that you have seen and it'll extend a little bit for the part that was cut out. Then there are some uh, interviews of some of the supporting characters in different places. The interviews were not included. Um, there's one actually quite lengthy interview with Joku that wasn't in the film, and I love Joku, so I was very pleased, and I was like, why didn't you put that in the film? Um, but there are no subtitles of any kind on, on this either, um, and so if you are not a Cantonese speaker, it can be very difficult to sort of ascertain what's going on. So the features, um, for the most part, for, you know, somebody in the West, non-Cantonese speaker, non-Chinese, not, not literate in Chinese, um, not really a draw. Um, but if you like, you know, if you're like me and you just like looking at Joku, no matter what she's saying, um, <laughs> you know, it, it might be worth the price of admission because she's, she's actually sitting or leaning against a bike. So she looks really cool. Um, <clears throat> so, yeah, uh, Blu-ray was kind of pricey. Um, hasn't really come down in price since release. I haven't seen it on sale or special, but still I'd say it's definitely one of the better recent films to come out in years and it, and it looks really good. So it's, you know, if you're somebody out there doing Blu-ray, especially with the soundtrack, cause the soundtrack's really good. Um, it is a worthwhile purchase. Uh, Kevin, anything you want to add about the Love and the Puff Blu-ray? Yes. Uh, it is actually the first, um, the first Blu-ray in Hong Kong to have a digital copy of mm -hmm. the film. Uh, but it's apparently so well hidden and so difficult to get that I don't even remember how to get that thing out of it anymore. I don't need a digital copy, but apparently there is a digital copy hidden inside. Really? Yes, yes. Um, there is a way to get behind it. And, and there was a whole feature, but I don't remember how to get to it anymore. Um, I think you have to download some kind of software or you have to play it from your iPhone or something like that. Yeah, it, hmm. it's very complicated. But um, also... I, I, I was listening to a Palm Trent interview today, and he said that there's actually he actually has an hour of deleted scenes from Love in the Buff. So considering that the DVD, the Blu-ray for the first film has a half an hour of deleted scenes, we can also expect an hour of deleted scenes uh, in the second movie. Well, that's great. So that's as, something. To as long as that hour is like, uh, you know, seventy percent Mini Yang, I'll be happy. <laughs> Yes. Oh, more Joe Koo, because Joe Koo only has one scene. In yeah, and I, yeah. you know, I, I don't even think, was she credited? Because I was looking for her name in the credits, and I didn't see it. She um, might have. Because she, she, yeah, she have. only has, like, one very brief brief scene in, in the sequel, and I was like, what? No. Yeah, people, Vincent, Vincent, Vincent Cook actually has a lot, lot longer, has more scenes, but they were all cut in the second film. Yeah. So, and th that's one of the things that I got a little bit confused with, because, um, if you remember the first film, um, in the credits, he's got a very long uh, thing where he's with the dog. Do you remember that? Yes, yes, yes. And he's talking about, um, you know, basically getting married, right? Right, uh, or no, uh, living with someone. Yeah, but but then yes. 
that doesn't really carry through to this to this film. It seemed because so, it's not a major character, so yeah. it's just one of those throwaway jokes. Yes. Yeah, just like the ending of this film. Yeah, but that's a that that, that was a great one. Yes, <laughs> that's yes. not a throwaway at all. <laughs> and I don't want to spoil it. I wish I could, but I won't. yes, and and don't don't subscribe to the Media Asia channel because they've already put up the side by side comparison, which spoils the entire thing. So yeah. don't don't watch that link. Yeah, uh, avoid it at, at all possible. All right, let me play this. You're listening to the East Screen, West Screen podcast. Visit Comcast.com for more. All right, so uh, Kenneth in the chat room, he says, love Joku, hope she's done some good work in the last few years. She really hasn't. I mean, uh, the yeah. the major thing I remember seeing her in was The Vampire Who Admires Me. Um, wouldn't really classify that as good work, but, you know, she was in it, so she certainly made the film better. Um, has she done anything else of note? Uh, she now has a dessert shop in uh, Taihang near New Causeway Bay, and she got married. So I think she's pretty much married to that shop and, of course, her husband. Mm. So, yes, uh, she's, she's kind of on a, in a not really half-retired. I mean, she still does functions. But uh, as far as film acting goes, I think she just um, pops in every once in a while. Yeah, kind of on the downswing, I guess. And that, that, that's something, too, that's kind of touched on in, the, in Love and a Buff, right, with uh, one of the cameos. Um, yeah. you know, sort of about knowing, knowing when to, when, when yeah. to, know when to fold them. Right. As Kenny right. Rogers used to sing. Exactly. Um, although I think she was certainly one of the most underrated, uh, actresses around and I, and I would love to see her. What was the one she did with rain? Um, uh, uh, single blog. Single. Yeah. Yeah. Single yeah. Blog. I, that was, that was, a, I, I really liked her in that one. Um, you know, I like her and I like her in pretty much anything. I mean, Vampire Admires Me is one of the worst films around, but she made it a little bit better. <laughs> um, so yeah, uh, no real other comments to talk about from the website. So, you know, if you would like to be a part of the show though, you can always stop by at our website at www.kongcast.com. That's K-O-N-G-C-A-S-T.com. Uh, you can leave us some comments there, pose us some questions, get involved in the discussions. Um, we're always happy to, you know, uh, see what you guys are talking about. And we'll sometimes bring that content up here on the show. Of course, you can always pop over to iTunes and leave us some feedback there. We'd very much appreciate it if you like it. If you don't, if you want to see some changes, whatever. Uh, Twitter, uh, twitter.com slash concast to follow the show. If you're interested to follow me, twitter.com slash foxlore. Um, although I kind of, you know, micro blog about very inane stuff and, uh, video games more more often than not. Um, uh, more interesting of the two of us is to follow Mr. Ma over at twitter.com slash the golden rock, because he is quite frequently posting film stats. And, you know, sometimes like today we do get into some very interesting, uh, Twitter conversations about people like Leslie Chung or about the film industry. Um, so I would certainly urge you to follow along with him. 
If you'd like to send us an email, that address is uh, gmail at eastscreen.com, and you can post us a question. You can send us a short audio file, short you know, review, keep it short and sweet, and we will play it here on the show. Kevin, you're still in the midst of the film festival. Um, yes. What else do you have going on, and how much longer will that last? Um, well, I just... Well, of course, I have the film festival, and I just turned in my Love in the Bub review uh, to, to, to Ross uh, at Love Hong Kong Film. So you can um, check out my review when he updates the site at www.lovehkfilm.com. Uh, I might update the blog eventually. Um, I've been way too busy. I've just got some new work deadlines coming up, so uh, I'm not sure what, when that will happen. But you can also check out what I do for my day job at yesasia.com in the Yumcha section, which is right at the bottom of the splat of the front page. So do check out my work and, of course, the work of other great editors at yesasia.com. Um, yeah, that's about it. Mm, all right. Um, Kenneth says, who else posts clips from Nocturnal Demon these days on Twitter? In effect, you're very interesting, Paul. I thank you for that compliment, Ken. And I have to throw one back in your direction because the only reason I posted that was because you were talking about, uh, what was it, uh, uh, Nocturnal Demon? No. No, that not, I was doing Nocturnal Demon. You were doing Nocturnal Killer. Killer's Nocturne, that's it. And I went to mm-hmm. look and see, oh, do I have that in my library? And the only thing I came up with was Nocturnal Demon. So I pulled that out and I started watching it. So... You know, it, it's it's a back and forth uh, between us. And I, I certainly thank you for getting me interested to go back and watch some of this old stuff. I've got Robotrix set aside uh, to go back and view that sometime this week when I get some free time. Um, and it's just good to have these kind of conversations going on. And like I said, I'm very excited that we can go back and visit certain things on YouTube. I'm excited we've got these podcasts and these different shows. I'm excited that Mr. Ma has a blog out there. And that we have sites like Love Hong Kong Film that, uh, you know, can keep us thinking about and talking about film. Viewing Robotrix alone? Yes, of, of course. <laughs> I don't think the wife would be too interested in that. Um, but she, I can she, join you, Paul. She's a trooper. She, 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 you know, she'll sit with me through almost anything. Um, so, yeah. Um, of course, you can uh, catch us on Stitcher if you're not interested in following us on iTunes. And if you want to listen to us on the go, you can listen to us on your iPhone, your Android phone, your BlackBerry, and your WebOS phone. Stitcher is smart radio for your phone. Find it in your app store or at stitcher.com. Stitcher smart radio, it's the smarter way to listen to radio. Uh, so big thanks to uh, some people as well. Before we sign off, Rob Gobbers of Snauzer Studios for our theme Ross Chen of LoveHongKongFilm.com for, you know, keeping us organized with movie nights. Of course, if you're out there listening and you ever come to Hong Kong and you'd like to join us for a movie night night and experience the dynasty, let us know. We're just an email away. Um, We would very gladly take you on a trip to the dynasty. It's one of uh, Kevin's favorite things to do, right? Um, (laughs) Where you come out alive is a different thing. But yes, we love (laughs) to trips to the dynasty. Yeah. Um, of course, thanks to Kevin for sticking around for 105 episodes and all of you, the listeners, for being here each and every week, whether you listen to us as a podcast or you're in the chat room um, like Kenneth and Matt and, and some of the others. Um, we certainly appreciate you guys being here and we appreciate the conversations that you get us uh, involved with. Next show, episode 106. Um I don't know. Do we have? Are we going to have a local film to talk about? Doesn't look like. Um, yes, we will. Uh, well, we we'll, we should be catching the uh, Taiwanese film, The Soul of Bread. 
somehow, um, starring Michelle Chen from Your Dad for My Eye. And we are organizing a trip to watch Scud's Love Actually Sucks. Oh. Of course, Paul, you're not in. I didn't send you an email because I know you're not in. Yeah, so don't worry. I will. I will. Um, I, I'm trying to find a, a phrase that does not have innuendo. I will. <laughs> I will take it like a man. Yes. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So, Soul of Bread. Uh, I'll let you talk about uh, Love Actually Sucks. And uh, I think we'll. We've got a couple things starting for West Screen Mirror Mirror. The new uh, Snow White take. Uh, yeah, you can take care of that one. Yeah. Um, <laughs> something else starting this week. Titanic too. 3D. Uh, no, no, thanks. Uh, the Lorax has some preview showing. Yeah, the Lorax. Um, I'm kind of excited to see that. Haven't seen an animated film in a while. And might talk about Wrath of the Titans. I'm supposed to go out and see that during the holiday, although kind of gotten, you know, it's, it's kind of going into that knowing that it's pretty bad, but... Uh, We'll see. We'll fit something in next week. We've got a lot of choices for West Screen, and it looks like a couple choices for East Screen. So all of that and much more on our next show. Until then, this is East Screen, West Screen, wishing you good viewing, and we will see you when? Next week? Next week. Next week. Next week. We